I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society. I'm happy to introduce Stephen Hicks and founder David Kelly, both senior scholars, uh, discussing the role of religion today. While they're offering their thoughts, feel free to raise your hands with questions and we'll bring you up to ask once they're done with their openings. Uh, I encourage everyone to share the room. Stephen, I think we said we'd start with you. Yes, so just give me the cue and I'll get going. Okay. And uh, what is the role of religion today? Well, the idea for this uh, clubhouse session came from uh, from David. So he's, you know, he's been thinking over the years a lot about this, but he developed this very interesting chart, which was uh, posted as part of a short article at the Atlas Society site, uh, I believe about a month ago, maybe a little less than that. Maybe you can share the link and uh, hoping people can have a look at that. But one of the, the, what's driving the, the chart is this question that, uh, you know, if, if religion not true, we'll put it in that hypothetical form right now. Uh, if it's not true, it's nonetheless true of religion that it seems to have a lot of cultural staying power. People have been arguing for and against religion for, for, for centuries. And whatever it is that religion is doing for people uh, seems to operate independently of whether the particular religion is true or not. So I think David's question was then to say, well, what, what is religion doing for people in developing an interesting list of uh, uh, possible functions that religion can, can, uh, can serve? So we're going to be uh, working our way toward that. I wanted to uh, start today because I wanted to put that uh, specific question in some historical context because the, uh, the formal title is, you know, what is the role of religion today? And if we emphasize the today part, uh, uh, one of the things that can drive that is that most uh, surveys done on people's religious beliefs show a, a downward trend, a downward trend in, uh, in uh, attendance at religious services. And then uh, when you <clears throat> push a little further and you, uh, of, of the people who do attend and who, uh, who do believe, if you ask them about the strength of their commitment or how how powerfully invested they are in various formal commitments that go with uh, with being part of the religion, that also shows a a, uh, a weakening. So uh, today, uh, more people seem to be non-religious or they seem to be less religious. Uh, these are North American surveys that I'm most most familiar with, but I know at least in Western Europe, they are there are similar trends there as well. And then objectivism is uh, is a is a non-religious philosophy, or it's an atheist philosophy. And so, when a, uh, objectivists engage with issues of religion, and we argue with uh, with uh, people who are religious, we uh, we tend to take, of course, an argue approach, which is to say, we focus a lot on the the arguments for and against religion. If we do it a little more formally, maybe there are you know, six or seven depending on how you slice them, major arguments for and against uh, uh, the existence of a god. Uh, and then uh, uh, if we're not focusing on those arguments, in many cases, uh, people who are religious will have uh, historically retreated from the idea of arguing for religion. They'll adopt religion for non-rational reasons. They'll turn to mysticism or they'll turn to faith 
<clears throat> so we as objectivists then spend a lot of time arguing about you know the the uh, the illegitimacy of faith in that non-rational sense mysticism and so on and i think all of that's that's important um but uh, i think it misses a lot of nuance when we pitch religion and the arguments for and against it at a at too high a level of abstraction so one of the things i want to do do in these opening remarks is talk about uh, why that nuance matters and why uh, 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 particularly these days uh, uh, when we have a much more diverse society culturally intellectually and so on uh, when people talk about religion it's not clear that they are as monolithically committed to uh, the, the same set of ideas the way if we were in medieval europe or, or whatever a thousand years ago uh, we know that people, by and large, are, are on the same page when it comes to comes to religion. Now, uh, when I was preparing my uh, thoughts for for this, I was reminded on this this nuance issue of a, a kind of a a funny taxonomy of uh, of Christians, and uh, I've heard it a couple of times over the years. But I actually, I first heard it when I was young from one of my uncles, who was a, uh, a Pentecostal preacher, you know, real fire-breathing, uh, you know, fundamentalist, but he did have a, a sense of humor and a, a twinkle in his eye, and we would talk about religion some, sometimes, and I, this anecdote always stuck with me when he said, uh, you know, uh, Stephen, there are, there are three kinds of Christians. And he said uh, the three kinds of Christians are Christmas Christians, Good Friday Christians, and Easter Sunday Christians. And he went on to explain what he what he meant by that. So, so what does Christianity really mean to people? And for the Christmas Christians uh, who think of themselves as as good Christians, what uh, what Christmas represents as the most important day of the year is this idea of there being uh, a birth, right? A, a, a coming into existence of a of a, of a new a new person who they also think is is a god, but we're celebrating birth and this whole life uh, ahead that comes with birth. And we're also celebrating, you know, fellowship and uh, singing songs and eating too much good food and uh, exchanging pre uh, presents. And we've got, of course, this Santa figure who's this benevolent uh, kind of uh, overseer of the of the of the whole holiday. So. What's driving uh, uh, the, the ship, if I mix my metaphors here, is this idea of there being a benevolent God who wants us to, uh, uh, to live and to be happy, and we're celebrating birth and growth and uh, uh, you know, all of the good things that come with fellowship uh, or, and surrounding Christmas right, and so on. But then he says there's another kind of Christian, and this is the, the Good Friday Christians. And for them, of course, you know, they celebrate Christmas. But the real action in uh, the Christian religion for them is on Good Friday, because Good Friday is the day that Jesus was killed. He was crucified. He was martyred. He, uh, he, he suffered a lot. Blood was shed. And for these Christians, this is the most significant day of the year. And what that uh, is indicating, right, is that for them, uh, what's really driving their ship, again, with that metaphor, is that it's about suffering. It's about sacrifice. It's about uh, 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 pain and martyrdom and being willing to die for your cause. That's what Christianity really is all about. 
And then if we turn to the Easter Sunday Christians, right? Uh, these are the uh, uh, Christians for whom this is the most significant day of the year, the one that they most resonate with and find themselves thinking about. That, of course, is the day when Jesus is said to have risen from the dead and ascended up into heaven. And so what this day represents for them is the hope that they too, upon death, will be resurrected, that there will be a, an, an afterlife for them, that they will go to, to heaven. And so what's really driving Christianity for them is their hopes for an afterlife. Now, they will subscribe to Christmas, they will subscribe to Good Friday, but this is really the heart and soul of, uh, of, of the religion for them. And the point of this is that these are three different <clears throat> Uh, 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 very important issues to each of these these pieces, but and it's not clear that people who are Christmas Christians are in the same psychological religious space as people who are Good Friday Christians, and it's not clear that either of those is in the same space that people who are in the Easter Sunday Christian. For one, it's uh, the religion is about you know, a benevolent deity and living the good life here. For the others, it's a very different space. It is you know, a completely different ethic focused on you know, sacrifice and suffering and martyrdom. And then for the third group, it's not really about either of those. What really is the Christian religion is all about is the hope for a kind of uh, immortality. Now, at a very high level of abstraction, of course, we would say, you know, they're all Christian. You know, so if we made a formal list of, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 things that you have to believe if you're going to uh, going to be a Christian, you say, here's this list, and you gave it to the Christmas Christians and the Easter Sunday Christians and the Good Friday Christians, they'd all say, yes, yes, I believe, I believe all of those things. But that high level abstraction is not really where the heart of the action is for, for, for any of them. And so the point then for this uh, of this for me is that when we talk about and this is just to talk about Christians and this is not necessarily all the types of Christians when we talk about religion uh, uh, um, uh, the high level abstract stuff is important but very quickly we need to get down to specifics get down to particulars particularly if we're interested in speaking to a particular individual or a particular group of Christians for the conversation uh, uh, to be productive, we have to know where they are coming from. So if we come in with high level abstract arguments, but we're talking with people who are, are uh, really oriented in terms of those high level abstract arguments, we really are just wasting our our times, right? Or if we come in all ready to argue against you know, altruistic sacrifice and martyrdom, but uh, the, the the Christians that we're dealing with really are Christmas Christians, then they're going to say, well, you know, that's not really, uh, that's not me. Uh, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I know that there are some other people out there, but your points don't really resonate. They don't have any traction against my understanding of what Christianity is is all about. Okay, so uh, with that, uh, you know, uh, slightly humorous uh, taxonomy, but I think there is a certain amount of amount of truth to it. Uh, um, I want to uh, just uh, pause on that and then go on to a more historical point to uh, to, to help frame frame David's chart. Another uh, way to approach this is uh, in terms of the history of philosophy, where I where I spend a lot of my time. If you look at the history of the philosophy of religion as far back as we can go there have been debates between 
people who are more naturalistic, people who are more supernaturalistic, who are, 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 are atheist or theistic. And so the debates, uh, particularly in philosophical circles, tend to focus on whether it's true that there is a God or, or whether there are gods. And then much of the history of philosophy of religion is careful presentations of arguments and counter arguments. And then people divide into some people think the arguments work, some people don't think the arguments work. And that's a metaphysical uh, uh, part of it rather than the history of philosophy in the metaphysics, trying to establish whether really out there in reality, we need to understand reality as uh, involving God or the gods or not. Another part of the important uh, part of the history of philosophy uh, focuses on people who uh, abandon for various reasons, say the idea that they're going to argue for or against the existence of God. And so they will shift the, uh, the discussion to epistemological issues and say religion really is just a matter of, of, of faith. It's not a matter of reasoning and argumentation, or it's a matter of uh, mystical insights. And either you have had certain mystical experiences or you haven't, in either case, it's not worth arguing uh, with you about. And that uh, occupies a huge uh, amount of time in uh, the formal history of uh, the philosophy of, of religion. And on my reading, uh, that reached its peak in the uh, 1700s, the, uh, the age of the Enlightenment. And it really was an astonishingly sophisticated century or so of debate uh, about all of the arguments for and against the existence of God and the epistemological issues surrounding reason, faith, mysticism, and, and so forth. But then a very striking thing happened toward what we now think of as the end of the, uh, the, the age of enlightenment, the end of the 1700s. Uh, by the time we get to the end of the 1700s, almost all major philosophers agree that the arguments for the existence of God don't work. And that had never happened before, to my knowledge, in the entire history of philosophy. So if we think about who the most famous philosophers are as we get into the latter part of the 1700s. It's people like David Hume and it's people like Immanuel Kant. And of course, there are going to be going to be others. If we spread on into the 1800s, early 1800s, we have people like Schopenhauer and Kierkegaard. And these are all now giants in the history of philosophy. And what's interesting is that two of them end up being atheists. That's Hume, and, uh, and and Schopenhauer, they're very strong atheists, and two of them end up being religious, uh, Kierkegaard and Kant, although Kant is uh, somewhat non-standard in, in his religion, but nonetheless he is defending a kind of, kind of religion. So basically we have two non-religious giants of philosophy and two religious giants of philosophy, and they're all within a generation or so of each other, all agreeing that religion is not uh, true. That's right. And Further, that it cannot be based on argument, right? Whatsoever. Now, then uh, that is kind of representative of where the history of the philosophy of religion was at that time. And you have a wholesale abandonment then by a significant number of people of arguments for the for the existence of God. But then very quickly, uh, the, the question that's on David's uh, Kelly's mind uh, illustrated in the chart then came to be, well, if religion is not true and it's not argued to be true, we don't know we, we can't we can't prove that it is true, what explains its staying power? And 
This era coincides with a, a pragmatic turn in philosophy. Uh, early pragmatism uh, is, is about to, to, to launch itself. And what we find is increasingly people who are interested in religion stop asking the big question about whether religion is true and start asking the question about what, uh, uh, what religion's functions are or whether religion works or not. And that's the uh, the pragmatic turn. So the, and the operative question then is to say, the point is to say, let's not worry so much about whether uh, you know, religion is true or not. We've been thinking about that for thousands of years now. Let's ask what functions religion is serving independently of its truth or not. So religion is uh, then seen pragmatically uh, or it is seen in functional terms. And then what I want to do is just uh, before I turn things back to David or over to David is uh, uh, just indicate over the course of the next century, again, four huge names that are very important here in, in what I think of as this functional slash pragmatic uh, uh, turn to understanding philosophy. Uh, so if you take someone like uh, like Karl Marx, who is uh, you know very famous here, Marx is an atheist. Uh, and he's very hostile to religion, but nonetheless, he is recognizing that religion is is uh, is, uh, is serving uh, a huge functional role. And since he's basically a political animal, what he wants to argue is that religion is not true, but rather that religion serves a functional role in propping up whatever the political economic system of the time is. So, you know, on his analysis. You know, it's the rich versus the poor, and the rich are exploiting the poor, and the poor, their lives are miserable and alienated, and they are suffering. And isn't it coincidental that you have this religion, Christianity, that comes along to the poor and uh, and, and the weak and tells them, you know, not to worry about money, uh, that good stuff is going to, you know, that they're supposed to suffer in this life and good stuff is going to come to them in the, in the next life. And then the rich are going to get the, you know, their punishments in the next life and so forth. And that you should turn the other cheek and be forgiving and blah, blah, blah. And Marx is then a point is to say that obviously this is serving a function, right? This is a, a, an ideological tool that is being used by the oppressive class uh, to uh, to keep the the, uh, the oppressed masses in line, to throw them a, a bone to chew on, but it's going to keep them complacent and uh, and, and more easily manipulable. Now, uh, pairing that uh, with uh, with Tocqueville, uh, Tocqueville who came and studied the United States, who also is, as far as I can tell, he's not a particularly religious guy. He's a man of the, of the Enlightenment. What's interesting though, when you read Democracy in America, is that he provides an endorsement of religion, but he does it in kind of a pragmatic and again, functional terms. That what he wants to argue is that uh, Americans especially need to be religious. And they need to be religious, not because religion is true. And he doesn't even seem to particularly care about which particular religion it is. He doesn't want to get into any of the debates over which religion is better or worse. But the idea here is that he says, you know, Americans are very practical people. They're very busy. They're building this new country. They don't have time for getting educated and you know, learning Latin and Hebrew and, uh, and all the ins and outs of theological debate. That's just going to confuse them. Instead, what religion does is it gives people a general framework. It gives them a kind of moral code. And uh, it's important for people who are 
busy, who are going to build a kind of decentralized democratic society to have a more or less shared set of moral and political principles undergirded by something that thinking is uh, is true, even if it isn't true. So here, again, we have someone who is in, uh, uh, talking about religion in purely functional and, uh, and, and, and pragmatic terms, just as Marx was talking about religion in pragmatic and functional terms. One of them, though, is endorsing religion and the other is quite quite hostile to uh, to religion. Now, as the uh, 1800s marches on, uh, instead of the focus on the, the, the functional and pragmatic elements of religion, uh, the focusing on the social and the political, there's uh, an increasing psychological turn and an interest in the psychological role uh, that religion or that religion has. So Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, who is also an, an, an atheist, uh, nonetheless notes that religion seems to have a significant staying power, but that staying power and the people who are very religious aren't necessarily, you know, busy working people and they're not necessarily poor oppressed people. In many cases, it's people who have leisure and wealth and they are quite comfortable. But what Nietzsche notices is that people who turn to religion seem to have a certain psychological type. And so he goes on to argue that uh, some people, of course, are born with various kinds of weaknesses. They're not very vital. They're very unsure of themselves. And so uh, they are more comfortable right, believing in or turning to religion to believe that there's some sort of a figure out there that has power and is looking after them and giving them guidance and so on. So that this, uh, this, uh, this religious uh, uh, function is serving a psychological need in a particular kind of individual. Now Nietzsche, of course, is scathing about you know, these psychologically weak people, seeing them as pathetic and so forth. But nonetheless, he is offering an interpretation of religion, not in terms of its truth, but rather in terms of its functionality, in this case, its psychological functionality. And then uh, just in the next generation, uh, and this is where I'll, 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 I'll close, uh, Freud uh, is also famous, even though he is an atheist for giving a psychological uh, interpretation of religion, as Nietzsche was giving a psychological interpretation. But what's interesting about Freud is that he is an atheist, and he ends up endorsing religion for psychological needs. And uh, the reason for that, just in short, is that Freud is a great pessimist. He thinks, you know, life is hard. It's a whole lot of suffering. Uh, you know that we can't really get through religion without various kinds of crutches. And that we've developed all sorts of sorts of crutches, you know, we turn to drugs or we turn to drink or we turn to gambling or whatever it is. Some people, if they're really smart, can, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, turn to science or turn to art, you know, in art you make these imaginary realities and you lose yourself in, 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 in these fantasy realms. But Freud wants to argue that uh, uh, most people aren't smart enough or they're not created enough to become become uh, scientists or artists, and drugs and, and alcohol are obviously destructive. So what Freud argues is that religion does serve a functional role of giving people a crutch, and it's a crutch that he endorses because he thinks most people need something like that in order to get through the day. He thinks it's silly, he thinks it's ridiculous, there are no arguments for it, but nonetheless, it is uh, serving an important functional role and those of us who are intellectuals, he wants to argue, should uh, kind of engage in the noble lie, you know, promote religion in society 
uh, for the for the psychological health of people. So those are uh, some of my uh, my framing remarks uh, for uh, for David's chart. So I'll uh, I'll stop there and turn it over to David. Okay. Um, thank you, Stephen. Uh, let me just uh, confirm that I can be heard. Yes. All right. Good. Um, as some of you know, we've had uh, I've had some difficulties with the uh, audio on my phone. But anyway, I'm I'm glad to hear that things are functional. So let me pick up um, and say, just say a word about where this chart came from that um, uh, Scott has shared, um, and I hope you all will take a look at it because that will be the kind of the centerpiece of uh, hopefully of our discussion. Uh, it's an analysis that I developed um, over really a couple of decades uh, of when I've touched, I've come back, I keep coming back to this issue about the role of religion and um, both, you know, sociologically what um, I think my first uh, effort on this back in 1997 was uh, developed the idea that there are, there are cultures really can be divided into enlightenment people and then pre-enlightenment and post-enlightenment or modern uh, people who have a, a modernist focus uh, versus the pre-modern and the post-modern and one of the things was that um, the, the, the my conception from a lot of reading and analysis at the time was that um, there is a large block of people who I would describe as Enlightenment types, but many of them are religious. The difference between them and the pre-modern, um, more people who are more serious about religion, was that uh, you know they didn't let it get in the way of getting rich, uh, having fun, going on great vacations, raising their kids to uh, um, be you know e even better off in their generation and prepare them for worldly success. Um, and the other worldly stuff was kind of, you know, like Stephen was saying, Christmas um, or Hanukkah or whatever. Um, it was, and I've come, I've come back to this from time to time, and I've seen changes over these years. Uh, since 9-11 in particular, I've been aware, and many people have, uh, that that religion seems to be coming back in um, the, the more serious form, the, the, the serious believers form. Um, we see this a, a bit in the uh, among conservatives in the United States. Uh, we certainly see it with is Islamic extremism, um, and which you know reared its head on. Um, on 9-11 and really focused our attention on that part of the world and that cultural element um, in Islam, which, you know, had started long before, uh, as we now, as at least, you know, a lot of uh, analysts have now pointed out, but it um, came to a fore and it seemed to be rising and spreading. Um, Ed Crane, who was the founder and longtime head of the Cato Institute, once described the event as the ultimate faith-based initiative. He was uh, riffing off of uh, uh, the first uh, George Bush president. Anyway, uh, and also in India, we see that um, Modi is, you know, the head of the, 
of the Hindu-oriented party, and he get, gets reelected by major, major um, majorities. So that's very different from the Gandhi years, um, you know, going back in history. So religion does seem to be active. Um, I don't have anywhere near the um, intellectual, you know, background that Stephen just outlined. Um, but I did focus it in, in a similar way on um, what role is this playing in our lives? Um, so the, the chart that I hope you all have access to now is um, it lists um, a number of human needs, and I consider these real human needs. That is, they have to be satisfied somehow for people to be happy, if flourish, and um, have any, any degree of success in life. But they can be, be met in different ways, and that's what uh, philosophy uh, tries to do. Uh, and as Ayn Rand often said, religion is a primitive form of philosophy, trying to answer those same issues. So in the chart, you'll see, notice that um, the uh, the first lines, first uh, bunch of batch of lines, are deal with basic philosophical issues, understanding man's place in the universe, uh, or understanding the origin of the universe, understanding nature, controlling nature, which is very important uh, in the uh, if you go back in the history of religion, uh, understanding life and death. That's a huge one. Uh, so these are uh, really fundamental questions that any philosophy would have to answer and address. Uh, then we get to more specific things like the conduct of marriage or um, the uh, uh, rites of passage in life, you know, becoming an adult, getting married, uh, etc., having a, a baptism in children. So um, in 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 each case, what I did was to, you know, take account of everything I knew. Um, and as I said in the piece that we published, um, this is my intuitive assess assessment. Um, I'm, I'm not claiming that it's based on extensive uh, empirical research, uh, of which there is quite a bit, and I've seen some of it. But um, this is just my integration of, of lots of different inputs uh, about the, does, what role does religion play on each of these uh, human needs? And I divided that into, in some cases, it is the main provider for that need. As for example, um, uh, I assigned that role to moral ideals. I think religion is still the main source for many people's moral ideals, even if they're not, you know, uh, um, dedicated believers, um, they still tend to accept altruism, which is a religious, has a religious foundation, as the moral code um, that they accept morally to operate on. Um, in some cases, though, um, religion has a significant role to play not main, but significant, um, but the, and that's because there are other elements in the culture, other forms of knowledge or practice that uh, are can also serve that need. 
And in some cases, religion just has a minimal role. It has some role, but it's not. It's it's overwhelmed by some of the, by the other uh, uh, ways of satisfying the need. And finally, in some cases, religion has no role at all. Um, uh, for example, in uh, understanding nature at this point, um, that's all science now. And um, you know the old you know. We're long past Galileo's uh, conflict with the church about, you know, whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth. So I, I want to ask, um, I want to just pose a couple questions and then open for discussion. Uh, my questions are, are my assessments uh, about the role of religion, are those plausible? That's question one. Question two, are there additional roles that uh, are not included here, but should be? Um, I was trying to think through, you know, all the different things that um, uh, roles that religion plays in people's lives. Um, but I'm not omniscient, <laughs> I'm not infallible. And, uh, you know, I'd be very interested in uh, any additional things. And then there's a final question here that, um, I think Stephen touched on a bit. To the extent that people embrace religion nominally, anyway, you know, they'll say in in polls by the Pew Center or whatever that they 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 you know they're Christian or they're Jewish or Islamic, but they uh, the question is whether the appeal of that religion for a given purpose is sort of by default that is religion's the only game in town where else you're gonna look for help in raising your kids or giving them some, you know, some idea of what the world's like, or is it, does it really have a, a positive um, draw that it distinguishes it, that people, that makes people want to go with religious explanations as opposed to, you know, secular ones? Uh, philosophical one. So that's a third uh, third question. Um, and with that, I want to open the discussion up um, and talk through um, the, these various things. Um, any questions about, of course, the questions for Stephen, as well as for me, um, and uh, question, uh, as well as questions about the, uh, uh, the role of religion. So I'm going to turn it back to um, Scott's moderation. Great. Thank you both. Uh, great openings. Um, you know, David, uh, the first thing that I thought about, I'm a fan of Abraham Maslow. And, uh, you know, one of his things was that as needs are met, higher level needs arise. And I'm wondering how that plays a role that even, you know, as, as technology advances that, uh, that's changing what people need. Well, I think that's probably true um, uh, in, in, in a very large sense. That is, uh, and one, one example of that that's not particularly connected with the religion is um, risk. Um, you know, you don't have to go too far, far back in um, history when the major risks that people faced were diseases that killed them because there was no cure, there were droughts that killed their crops and they starved, uh, 
we don't deal with that anymore. Uh, we have advanced medicine. We have um, uh, food supply that is um, amply abundant uh, at whatever income level you have. So people, but uh, I've, I think people have a, a kind of internal set point for anxiety. If if they're not worried about um, a plague or a drought anymore, well, they'll worry about something else, like uh, kids getting stolen on the street or, uh, you know, uh, pedophiles everywhere or the um, various conspiracy theories that arise that um, kind of provide people with some, oh, okay, I, now I have something to worry about. Um, so uh, in that sense, I think technology has, um, has, in advancing our standard of living, has also raised the, um, had the effect of shifting the locus of, of people's fear of risk. But that's, a, that's kind of a side point here. The, I, I think Mas, there's a lot to be said for Maslow's uh, hierarchy. Um, but at the same time, historically, religion goes back uh, long before, as far as we can tell archaeologically, long before the earliest civilizations. People have always believed in some form of supernatural being uh, who needed to be uh, uh, addressed, prayed to, supplicated with sacrifices, etc. Um, and this is at a time when people were, you know, in, in the hunting gathering phase. So they had no, um, you know, they were still struggling to meet their, you know, biological needs uh, for food and shelter. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think um, religion is a, a quite the spiritual luxury that um, you might think if you're going solely by Maslow. I think it is uh, has much deeper roots in human um, human nature and human society. Well, um, I'll uh, I'll get back to that. I want to invite others, uh, but I, I can uh, I definitely have some questions as well. Stephen, I really appreciate you um, talking about how there are different degrees and, and differentiating uh, between how religious someone is. I feel like too many, especially in the liberty movement, will just say, you know, make these bl blanket statements like uh, religious people can't be for liberty and things like that. And it just it doesn't apply to someone like a, a you know, Christmas Christian, for example. And it's, uh, you know, w when they're like that, I mean, it, it, is it necessary to uh, spend so much time, you know, trying to convert them versus trying to see where we can get value from each other? Um, yeah, I, I think the, yeah, the immediate implication from what you're saying is a kind of rhetorical point. Um, yeah, I think a lot of times people are engaged with religion issues and they've come down on one side or the other of the arguments and then when they get into discussions they're much more focused on articulating their own views uh, uh, rather than listening to the other person's uh, views and, and contexts so once you get past that phase and you know what you think if you're genuinely interested in having uh, you know discussions that are going to go somewhere with, uh, with with people with whom you disagree, 
it is necessary to spend some time getting to know in particular what uh, religion means to them, what particular doctrines they subscribe to. And then as, as you suggested, even that comes in degrees because uh, some people are more or less committed to, uh, to particular doctrines. And that takes a, a certain amount of work. I mean, I want to say sometimes it goes the other way. Uh, it, the irritation uh, that I know a lot of religious people have, it's not just people in the liberty movement, but people who are atheists who will uh, just you know, say religious people are all cut from the same cloth and then have a standard set of uh, dismissive arguments. The same thing goes the other way. People who are religious will say, oh, you're an atheist, and then they've got a very uh, you know, truncated uh, uh, abstract understanding of what it means to be an atheist you know, not recognizing that uh, you know, atheism actually doesn't predict very much about what a person's positive beliefs are going to be, and people can still be all over the map. Great. Just uh, add add something to, to Stephen's point. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Atheism tells, you know, if someone says I'm an atheist, it says what I don't believe. It doesn't tell you anything about what he does believe. Um, but related to that, I think many, much of a certain portion of the hostility, I, I won't, you know, try to specify how much, but a certain proportion of the hostility that religious people feel toward atheists is they interpret atheism is mean as meaning you don't believe in anything. You don't have standards. And one way that I've um, I've tried to address that when it's come up in my own discussions with people is, yeah, I believe in something. Um, I think there's an objective right and wrong, and um, some things are true and some things are not true. Um, I, I just don't have the same anchor. I, I don't believe in the same anchor that you do. And that puts that our, our approach, I think, into the same context as you know, uh, Christians typically don't make that claim against um, the Jews, for example. You don't believe in anything. Of course they believe in something, um, or Buddhists, for that matter. Um, so uh, I, I, th I think it's the, um, uh, the highly negative and disreputable nature of uh, uh, what people assume about atheism um, that is the problem, not the real um, not the real philosophical issues. Great. Uh, we'll go to JP. JP, thanks for joining. Thank you, Scott. Um, so I, 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 um, was born Catholic and, um, I went through a lot of cognitive dissonance when I was a kid. I never bought into religion very much, and uh, it was only after my formative years that I became agnostic, I would say, and I was, I, I've been agnostic for a long time. And when I found philosophy and I found objectivism and as a new actual source of morality, I, I've been feeling content about the whole thing. Uh, but that said i've always felt that um i am a cultural christian and that um that aspect of my 
my value system and my worldview has been useful. And and I think it I don't know if it was uh, Richard Dawkins or or Christopher Hitchens that said that the net effect of religion in humanity and civilization has been positive, even with all the inquisitions and the holy wars and everything that has everything bad that can be attributed to religion in the end for society and for western civilization christianity has has been a net positive what what are your views on that uh, Stephen, do you want to start out on that um okay that's a that's a that's a huge question um so i'm going to take the the easier one the net effect of religion I want to say uh, yes. I'm more sympathetic to that because I think if you go, you know, 300,000 years of human history, um, you know, humans do need to believe in something rather than believing in nothing. And if you have a uh, a worldview that is religious, that's going to be better than nothing. And so, just having that is going to enable human beings to to advance um so the, the the thought experiment then would be to imagine human beings not having had any religion ever versus having had some religion and my sense is that uh, religion has been a net positive force in that way my uh uh, uh and again there's a huge amount of history that needs to be uh, gone through and integrated is to say that when religion starts to become clearly a uh, a net negative is when uh, it gets more sophisticated and entrenched and then uh, there's a doubling down on the more irrational elements so if you have for example a society in which people have say a more naturalistic religion and they have uh, you know, certain rites of passage and they believe, say, in animal deities, but that the world is kind of cause and effect. Uh, and, and so they have a religion that's giving them a cause and effect understanding of the world. It's giving them some sense that they can interact with the, uh, with the causal forces and get them on their side. And so it makes them a little more optimistic. And they've got some, some rules that help their society hang together. That's, that's not not bad but if you then have a more sophisticated society and people start saying things like well is it really true and then lots of people start to say well maybe the arguments aren't very good but the advocates of the religion then turn to non-rational methodologies they say exert a power play and say well uh, stop asking those questions. Those are dangerous questions, and we're going to uh, to do bad things to you if you continue to, to question those things. Uh, just accept things on faith, uh, and to the extent that they are successful in that kind of uh, power play and cognitive undermining, then uh, they're starting to uh, introduce more negativity uh, into that culture, making it ultimately less less uh, less functional so i think those sophisticated power play religions and ones that are more explicitly non-rational 
are more dangerous than the more primitive religions. And to the extent that they start to become more dominant, then in those times and places, religion is going to be a net negative. It's like when the Medici became the Pope. <laughs> um, I, I love the idea of invoking causal forces. That's a good generalized way of asking for help. David, did you want to say anything? Um, yeah, I just, I'm going to lodge a quick thought um, that's uh, very broad too. Uh, I, I think um, it, what Stephen is saying is, it, you know, agrees with everything I understand about the history of religion. But at the same time, if you look at any religious tradition, Christianity, Islam, uh, and I assume it's true of the um, Eastern religions, Hinduism and, and Buddhism, which I know less about, um, what you see when you look at any one is that over the over the centuries that it has a, uh, that religion has existed and been practiced, it takes very very different forms, and those forms are uh, reflect other cultural factors, so that um, you know it, in in the light in the Enlightenment as you know, even people who were quite serious about religion tended still to be, you know, favorable to reason and, um, you know, in favor of, of maximizing human um, human enjoyment and success in, in this world, um, as opposed to, and you could say the same thing of, of uh, Islam in, a, in the um, 800s, 900s, um, there were some great philosophers uh, of Islam. It was very open. It was hungry for insight from all other kinds of traditions, both from Greece uh, to the West and India to the East, uh, before it closed down and became monolithic and exclusionary, and then eventually took the form today, as it did sometimes in the past, of, of being um, uh, you know, militantly dogmatic and violent. So the, um, but that, that, that's my only point really. And, um, I, and, you know, just to bring it up to today, I think what we see is that, um, many people will say they're Christian or uh, religious. Um, but that doesn't, they don't very few um, martyrs sitting on on pillars out in the desert. We have a few nuts who do that, but um, you know you just don't see people doing that a lot. Um, and why? Because because the children of the Enlightenment uh, and America, uh, to take that example, but of you know of Western values and uh, Western um, you know view of life. So anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. One of your points is about, you know, uh, social network, uh, support network, social connections. And yeah. you know, that's interweaving and I think plays as much of a role about whether a religion is maybe uh, playing the, the good guy role or the bad guy role with as with many uh, social hierarchies. But um You've got uh, another one about uh, understanding life and death. And I, I think 
to some extent, I think fear of death is a major thing that, that has driven people into religion since we've been able to understand the concept. Well, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and, you, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to religious people that I've, I've been, you know, close enough to, to, um, you know, talk about some of these more intimate questions. And, uh, one of them, one of the questions is, you know, what, what does religion do for you? And very often the answer will be the first answer, not the only one, but the first answer will be, um, I'll get to see my, my husband again, or I'll get to see my parents again. Um, not quite like I'll get to see Aristotle and shake his hand, but um, what which is my dream. But um, otherwise, you know, the idea that um, all even even today, I think that has a bite. If you go back in time to the medieval period, there was a you know a sense. Stephen, you you weigh in on this because it's historical, but um, that. This life is a veil of tears, and um, but you should practice virtue, uh, be a good believer, and you'll be rewarded in the next life because this life sucks. So I think that's an important issue. Yeah, is that the basis of almost the kind of platonic world of forms? There are two worlds, one better and one terrible in base. Well, I, I suppose Ed, there's a relation. I wouldn't have thought of that. So I'm just going to let that let that one slide. It's deserving more thought or someone like Stephen who knows more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I do want to, uh, let's go to uh, Lunatic Libertarian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on stage. I really appreciate the Atlas Society. Uh, I would say that when it comes to a religious aspect or any uh, rule of morality it, it is what we're talking about. So the rule of morality to one culture or one religion is different to the next. Uh, when we live in the United States, the, the freedom of religion or the freedom of assembly gives you the practice of your tradition, regardless of anybody other's opinion under the law of the Constitution. So if, if we look at if religion is morality and morality is driven by religion, where, 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 where's the moral compass for humanity when there's such a difference across cultures of what's acceptable and what is not acceptable across morality? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get, get a start on that. It's a great question. I'll get a start on that. Um, one of the things I remember back when I was writing about the, uh, the culture wars, uh, was a conservative writer who said it's important to believe in to accept a religion to believe in a religion it doesn't matter which one and i thought well that kind of says it all uh, <laughs> i was surprised to find so bald a statement because 
you know, what it's saying is that religion, it's not which religion is true. Um, like we would ask about, you know, which uh, scientific hypothesis is true, but rather just religion as such. And, but I think there's a point, uh, there's a kind of uh, rationale behind that, because if you look at the ethical systems of most major religions, they're very similar. I mentioned altruism before, that's common across every religion, uh, as well as a whole lot of secular philosophical ethical theories. Um, uh, you, a lot of, uh, you know, morality has to do with um, uh, child raising, families, rites of passage, and obligations of parents to children, children to parents, and so forth. And, you know, I, whatever you're, that, that's, that's a fact about human life, and it's something that almost every religion will deal with in one form or another, but there, that I think the differences among religions um, are, broadly speaking, maybe even less than the differences within religions, because those get down to details like, um, what's the proper role of jihad? Is it just means the internal struggle, or does it mean killing the, the infidels? Um, but I'm, I'm, that's not quite a detail. I'm, I don't mean to mean it, but you still, you know, Islam is still defined by the, uh, the five articles. I can't remember all of them, but, um, you know, giving away a 10th of your income or something like that is, uh, one of the five principles recognizing all, uh, not that different from the 10 commandments in Judaism or the, you know, Christian, uh, uh, what is it called? The uh, Apostles' Creed. Stephen, is your hand up? I yes, I'm trying to signal that I have a I have okay. a question to get on the queue. Sure. Yeah, uh, I also have a question for uh, for David's chart, which I I like very much. Um, but I wonder if the, the Adding a couple of lines, uh, emphasizing more cognitive uh, uh, rules for religion, uh, and these might be ones that cut across some of the content lines here. So, if you take, for example, the idea of the felt need for certainty in one's life, whatever your beliefs are, that it's not enough to uh, just have you know, sort of probabilistic theories or rough and ready things. You you need to have certainty. So if we take, for example, moral rules, the person might say, well, you know, absent God, we might in a naturalistic way get some rough and ready practical rules that we would all abide by, but there wouldn't be anything that, that made them kind of certain or absolute. Right? Or in the category of understanding nature, yes, you know, science can do a lot to help us understand nature, but you know maybe science is it's changing all the time and it's it's probabilistic. Uh, and I want something that's more robust. I want to have a uh, an understanding of nature and where the world came from that's definitive, and I can believe it certainly. So would the need for certainty uh, count as another kind of role that religion provides and then a related a related point if i could just put this one out while i'm on the point another kind of cognitive thing is that 
in many cases, uh, philosophy and science can provide uh, all of these things here, but typically science is very hard and mathematical, philosophy is very abstract and general, and that what religion is doing is uh, satisfying all of these needs, but the religions uh, uh, in providing their answers pitch them at a more concrete level and a more perceptual level. So it's not just a bunch of general moral you know, principles that you need to exercise judgment on. They're very concrete rules. It's not general uh, principles of physics and biochemistry that the universe operates in terms of. Rather, the, it's, a, it's a personified being, a god or the gods. And so what religion then is doing is providing, in this case, a cognitive need to have uh, one's philosophy of life presented in a more perceptual and, and concrete level form. Yeah, those are great questions, Stephen. Um, I, I, I agree completely with the, uh, the idea that religion provides a kind of certainty. Um, it's, you know, it's one thing to say, for example, why should you not steal from your neighbor? And objectivists will give you, you know, even in, in short form, a three-page paper. Um, and the Christian will say, because God said so, it's in the Ten Commandments. Um, and that is um, both, the, it feels more certain, and because it doesn't, you don't have to analyze an argument, and, or, you know, the complicated inference. But at the same time, it... Uh, it's easy. I, it is a phenomenon that I think cuts across a lot of fields, not just religion. Human beings, um, you know, one, one thing about cognition is that it takes effort, and some people don't like effort. And so they're, uh, in every field and every question we can raise uh, or discuss, there is what I call a phenomenon of get certain quick by analogy with get rich quick. I want to take some kind of shortcut to, um, you know, get to that, get to the goodies, which in this case would be certainty. Um, but it's it's fully comparable to people who want to get rich quick by um, cutting all sorts of corners. However, I do think that certainty is a, is a genuine need. And, um, uh, I'll have to think about adding it to the chart because, as you said, it does um, it does apply to so many of the things on the chart already. So it's it's kind of like a meta uh, value, but that it's really important. Um, I, I just on, and the second point um, about religion versus science. There's actually been a fair amount of uh, psychological research on this. I mean, there's a huge field of psychology of religion. Uh, which I'm far from an expert in, but one of the things, one of the points that um, is made sometimes um, is that religion is just easier. And why is it easier? Um, easier to grasp than science. Well, religion um, is just based on some things that everyone gets from childhood on. That um, it's. Uh, you know, we we think in terms of agent causality. That's our first form, first awareness of causality. I did it. 
or mom did it. it that's why it happened. So it's very um, natural to think that whatever happens in the world, someone's doing it. Someone's responsible for it. Someone's to blame for it or whatever. Um, we're very uh, attuned psychologically to other, you know, other minds and understanding uh, other minds as as people, as themselves, not only, you know, causal agents, but um, cognitive agents. And so, you know, we expect um, that the source of knowledge may trace trace back to um, a cognitive agent, a supreme being who's omniscient and, and uh uh, you know, who's never wrong, knows everything. There are, uh, whereas science is hard. It's not natural in the same way. You have to learn enough. Um, you have to detach from the agent-centered. Everything is caused by some de deliberate agent in nature um, to know causality is uh, a basic part of physical nature. Um, and we study it uh, on its own terms. So, but that's not natural. And then specific, the, the whole epistemology of establishing particular scientific uh, conclusions, even at a fairly low level, like um, uh, gravity took human beings um, centuries to do. And I, I don't know how many people would could give you the uh, a proof of Newton's law of gravity, um, or the evidence you know what led him to that. It's hard. Uh, it, it requires a lot of study. So that makes religion. In, uh, the argument here is that religion it comes much more naturally to people cognitively than science does, um, and so I think that's a factor also. Great. Uh, well, I want to give Richard a chance. Senior scholar Richard Salzman is joining us. Thanks for being here, Richard. Do you have a question? Well, I, this is a great conversation. Thanks, both of you. Just following up on what um, David just said, that uh, Ayn Rand famously in an interview said um, something like, religion is a primitive form of philosophy. Something like it gives you canned answers to like real, genuine questions. So I think that's one of the one of the great things about what you've achieved, David, and the Atlas Society is this appreciation for religious folk who are looking for philosophy, view of the universe, the origins, ethical codes. And then, of course, then the idea would be, yeah, but we need a rational set of it. And the, the difficulty, I, I hadn't heard it put that way before. It's very interesting because she's, she, and by the way, those are from the Tom Snyder interview. If you want to look it up, I think it's 1979 TV interview. Fascinating because Snyder himself was a Catholic. And the conversation between him and Rand is fascinating because the fear of death issue does come up. And she quotes, I think, Lucretius and others saying, well, why would you fear that? Where you are, death is not, you know, where death is, you are not. It's like you're sleeping. Why would you be aware of it? So, and he was, he's quizzical about listening to it. He was interested. And she also said something interesting about, wouldn't you treat every moment of your life more special if you knew there was no afterlife? And that really influenced. So just from the standpoint of talking with a religious person, that interview with that five-minute segment on just religion is fascinating because she doesn't get mad at him. She doesn't 
ridicule him. But the other thing I'm thinking, David, here's my real question. She was also asked many times um, how much an objectivist really has to get into philosophy. And I think she said, or Leonard might have said something like, there's philosophy for Hugh Axton, and there's philosophy for Reardon. And the idea was, Reardon's philosophy, we all need philosophy. But she acknowledged that we need it at different levels. If you're a professional philosopher, that's different than, you know, if you're a steel magnate. But if you continue that argument, and go further and say, you know, philosophy for the truck driver, philosophy for the waitress at the diner. Is this really what's happening? Could it be just simply that at that level, people need a quick and dirty, you know, give me a code, give me a 10 list code of what to do. It's not philosophy for Reardon or Axon, it's philosophy for the waitress, if you will. And that makes it more plausible, doesn't it? Um, I see hold, that they would hold to it. Yeah, I see, I see the uh, the spectrum you're you're laying out, but I think there's it's not there's more than a quantitative difference between um, mm. Axton. There is one between Axton and Rudin, but between Rudin, let's say, and the truck driver, or you know, um, I don't know. My experience is that I've I've seen mental initiative and curiosity about the world in people of all different traits. I had a builder working on a house I owned for a while and we had great conversations. Um, and um, because he was curious, he wanted to know everything and more curious, more open-minded than a lot of people uh, with PhDs that I've met. So, the um i'm not sure but i it, it but yes uh some people going about their ordinary lives who maybe are not um intellectually as gifted um still need a philosophy and but i still think you know you don't need to go to the mythology of religion to yeah. have that um I mean, think about think about kids. You know the Santa Claus myth. Right. Well, until you're you know four or five or whatever, say you can't. Oh my God, Mom, put the cookies out. Santa's coming, and right. uh, yeah. and then you see packages in the morning. They just where do they come from? Santa Claus. Well, yeah. at some point you realize you're you know you're told or you come to the realization. No, there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> Mom and Dad did that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it it's not a I think for most people, it's not a huge blow. It's just uh, <laughs> uh, a different explanation. And uh, in the psych psychological literature, which I was referring to before, there are also people who say um, children are much more willing to believe in unobservables uh. that are in nature, like the um, you know, the uh, water vapor in clouds or something, then they are to believe in um, something out of nature, supernatural, yeah. uh, unobserved. Uh, for that, they need cultural input from parents, teachers, culture at large. So I think um, I think people can get to at least a simple form. My life is mine. I'm going to live it the best I can. Um, you know, I'm going to use my mind. What else have I got? 
and um, you know, I, fairness is in, in treating people is not. It kind of comes naturally. Anyone who comes out of a family has some experience of fairness and unfairness. Uh, so I'm not sure I would um, mm -hmm. give religion as much credit uh, on, on mm -hmm. that score. And your, your follow-up, your earlier point about the conservative, David, any religion, just have some religion. If the, yeah. alternative, if the alternative is nihilism, if the alternative is what we see spreading today, okay, the polls show that people are becoming less religious, but they're not substituting for that, say, objectivism, but rather nihilism, the postmodern movement, all that nothing is knowable and everything is yeah. up some gender and all that stuff is you can see why someone would say, could you please believe in something, however primitive, <laughs> rather than nothing, which is thoroughly destructive. Um, maybe that's where he's coming from. Uh, anyway, thanks, David. Thanks, both of you are really learning a lot here. Thanks. We'll go to Stephen, then lunatic. Thank you, Scott. I have another question for David about his his great chart, and it focuses on the the last line, which is artistic experience, uh, which I think is a, is a is a need, and then the assessment of the role of religion now uh, as as minimal. And uh, I was thinking about that, and it strikes me that uh, religions historically and even to this day are really uh, polarized in an almost schizophrenic way when it comes to uh, art. There are some religions that seem to see art as, a, as an enemy, perhaps because art is such a powerful provider of uh, certain needs that we have, that they see it as a, a competitive threat, so they want to stamp it out. So all of the, you know, the, the early history of Christianity of you know, uh, uh, smashing sculptures and bonfires of the of the vanities and so on, and that uh, uh, replicated in uh, the Taliban in in, uh, in Afghanistan, going into the museum in Kabul and literally with hammers, you know, smashing as many uh, uh, artistic uh, uh, pieces as they as they possibly could, or in some religious traditions, having explicit prohibitions on on uh, creating visual imagery and statuary and so on. So, um, uh, so it's like the, the, the need is important. And in that case, uh, religion says we want to provide all of the needs in this area. So we're going to eliminate art as a, as a competitor. Um, and then other religions seem to go the other way. They, uh, they will embrace religion and build you know, beautiful cathedrals and uh, uh, you know to the point of baroqueness it's stuffing them every nook and cranny with art with the you know gorgeous stained glass windows and and carvings and using art uh, in an integrated way with their religion uh, and music as well incorporating music seriously into their uh, uh, into their services. You know, I'm thinking now of uh, like you know black uh, uh, churches and gospel, where there's a huge amount of music, and uh, almost the entire ceremony is is built around that kind of artistic experience. And a lot of 
theater in the way the preacher speaks in uh, many of the Southern Baptists. So there's theater and music and statuary and painting and all sorts of aesthetic elements with respect to the, uh, the, the clothing. So, so I guess my general question is, you know, when we say minimal, um, is that accurate or does it need to depend on the religion? Yeah, that's another great question, Stephen. I, I worried about that um, and went back and forth on that line, um, uh, you know, minimal or um, significant. It, it certainly historically it has been hugely significant. Um, and, you know, it, at times the main source of artistic experience. And, you know, all you have to do is walk into, you know, as you were saying, you know, walk into a cathedral like Notre Dame or, or uh, St. Patrick's in New York. And you're just blown away by the uh, the visual iconography, the visual uh, detail, and and then the music um, is just it's some of the you know by my amateur standards um, some of the best music ever written, um, and so art was a. What I mean, I I take that as a reflection of a point Rand made that art is a concretization of your view of the world, and churches that um, religions that uh, have made a lot of use of that to concretize the stories, and um, just hold the attention of people who may not be able to follow the uh, you know the whole sermon, but they're looking around. And even Islam, which, of course, uh, and the earlier, some forms of Christianity with the uh, iconoclasts, people who were breaking up the icons in um, Islam, which forbade any representation of a human being because only God can create a human, uh, much less of God himself, Allah. But Islamic art, there's a, you know, they just put their artistic ability in, in another form. Um, and if you look at um, some of the, uh, the mosques uh, and other things in Islamic Spain, uh, the part of Spain that was Islamic, or uh, in, uh, in Baghdad, if they're still there, um, there was, it was it was artistically sophisticated. Um, it just didn't take the form of visual representation of human beings or anything that could be modeled as a human. So I think that was a um, just a point of th that Islam took that direction um, as against icons um, and rather than the Christian view, which was against icons for, for at certain times and certain branches, but, you know, made peace with it and then went on and made a lot of it. So I think that um, historically, artistic experience was maybe at, at some times it was the main source of uh, artistic uh, satisfaction. But today, I don't think the, that religion is generating kind of art. Art has just, my sense is that it's kind of separated off. We have, um, you know, look at the paintings of the 19th century and 20th century, the music. Um, I don't see a strong connection with religion there. Um, I'm not an expert, so this is a kind of um, a judgment on which I would, uh, you know, like like a better opinion. 
All right. Well, uh, Lunatic, thank you. I know you've been waiting with another question. Uh, uh, thank you again for uh, having me on stage. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I, the first thing I'm going to say is I think this is a very monotheistic uh, um, ideology um, as far as history is concerned. Um, I'm a Norris pagan. So um, my religious philosophy derives off of uh, um, quote unquote myths from uh, certain 15th century uh, writings that we know as the Prosaedas or um, any other of the, the monks that wrote about uh, the Vikings during that time. And the Vikings is, it's an occupation of a certain people. So um, it's, a, it's a very uh, a condensed version of, of history. But what I want to say is that um, I, I, I think that idea, ideologically, when you talk about religion and going what I presented before when it comes to about uh, morality, uh, one of the things that brought me to the Norris pagan religion is uh, military experience. Uh, military experience is something that uh, will show you if, if, if you talk to any veteran, especially in a group sense, say you got like 10, 12 uh, vets uh, uh, from occupations that are documented uh, worldwide as far as uh, um, the scripture for the Department of Defense. But um, uh, it, it's funny if you talk to those veterans and you want to talk about a symphony of music, right? We, they, they talk about um, uh, weapons fire and stuff like that. So, and then if you talk about ideology or idols that you worship, it, 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 then it turns into what do I, what do I worship is, is my uh, a weapon because it's a part of my survival. So when you can manipulate the brain to say that we have – one religion versus another, which has been propagated as, I'm not saying that's what it is, a monotheistic uh, ideology versus another monotheistic ideology, then you can have a, a, a holy war or a jihad, right? So um, that's across mm -hmm. countries. Then when we talk about- Give me a chance to answer. I, but I'm not, uh, give me 30 seconds. I'm not done yet. Um, when it when it when it comes to the uh, philosophy of morality and how a person's survival or a human being's survival is derived from that morality, how is religion the baseline for that? Is my question. Whether it's monotheistic or uh, 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 polytheistic or whatever. Well, to the extent that's an historical um, question, I want to defer to Stephen um, and others who are more con more conversant with it. But uh, it seems to me that um, you know, I just I think of the um, jihadists who uh, you know blow themselves up. They're going to meet Allah. They're going to uh, the heaven. Uh, so that that idea of a survival that you know you know dying in battle is an honorable thing um 
partly for secular reasons. That is, it shows your courage and your um, commitment to, you know, the standards, whatever they're, wherever they are, chivalry, religion, or whatever. But um, it, there's so many examples of people saying, people feeling, um, yeah, uh, I'm willing to risk that because there's a, a life beyond. I'm not, I'm not sure I got understood the question fully, but I, let's let um, anyone else jump in on that. Well, hold on. Uh, the The question really was, is how do we manipulate the brain to have a predetermined outcome for the action that the body presents? I, I guess that's what it really boils down to. Uh, well, it's a psychological question, and military has spent a lot of time on this. Um, I just think you a lot of discipline, a lot of training. And uh, my understanding is that people go into very dangerous occupations like police, firemen, uh, military, soldiers um, are not trained to face, to go out and get killed. They're trained to avoid death by careful uh, expertise. But um, I, let me turn it back to Scott because I know we in short. Uh, yeah, I just had uh, one final question because you alluded to this idea that, you know, these people say that without uh, religion, you know, anything goes or there'd be no morality. And, you know, obviously as objectivists, we don't see it that way. But can you appreciate that Christians may look at it and say, okay, well, since we went away from religion, we, you know, let's look at how well atheist Russia has done for human rights or atheist China or, you know, Hitler wasn't particularly religious. And so that's what they've, they've come to see as, as this, you know, what the fall of religion has done for humanity. Well, the short answer to that would be, uh, yeah, um, you could, <laughs> there was an equal horror in Nazi Germany and they were, uh, uh, I don't, they had some kind of spiritual uh, belief or quasi-religion. But, you know, the test of it, here's a here's an empirical test you could run. Um, just take a cross, a survey of people um, across different points of view, different philosophies and uh, Christian, um, Muslim uh, and objectivist, and look at the rates of um, the broken families, um, uh, minor crime, and I bet objectivists will come out fairly good on that. I mean, you just don't see a lot of objectivists holding up Seven Elevens, um, and it, granted, we're a small group, but um, we we have the you know the same cross section of. of uh, demography, I think. So, you know, that's just a bad argument. It's just it, really bad argument. But it's what they've come to. I'm trying to understand why, you know, someone like a Dennis Prager, you know, becomes a skeptic of the Enlightenment. And it's because he's tying people like Kant or Rousseau into it. And the you know and and they're just looking at these consequences of 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 socialism that came after it. But um, 
this has been uh, a really good topic. Uh, I'm glad that you both uh, chose to do it. Any uh, final thoughts on, um, you know, your chart and things to look for uh, for suggestions? Well, I would just uh, go back to the question that I asked before. Um, are there uh, additional needs that should be added to the chart? And are the different assessments that I made intuitively um, about the role of religion for each of these needs, uh, are, are those plausible? We've talked a bit about the uh, art and artistic uh, experience. Uh, that's a great one to think about. And uh, so, um, I'm, you know, my my information is, and I think all of our information is, uh, contact information is on the Atlas Society website. So I'd be interested in hearing. Great. Yeah, they can definitely uh, email me, scott at atlassociety.org. I'm happy to forward uh, any kind of information if, uh, if yours isn't on there. But uh, again, thank you both so much for doing this. Uh, next week, uh, Tuesday at 4 p.m., we're having a special happy hour clubhouse. Lawrence and I will be talking to the founder of Lieberland, Vit Jedlika. That should be good. And then um, actually Tuesday after that, uh, the Atlas Society is going to be doing its first Twitter space. That's going to be Tuesday the 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's going to be with our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, and Rob Trzinski on what is self-interest. So uh, definitely looking forward to both of those. Uh, we will uh, see everybody next time. And uh, again, thanks everyone who participated and just joined. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Same.